Oh, man. I hear this new teacher threw some kid out a window in Chicago. Oh, man. Ran him over with his car. No, no, that's not what happened. The guy got fired because he went berserk in class. He picked up a chair and threw... Oh. It's my fifth class today. I'm a little out of shape. Thank God you're seniors. You'll have mercy on me, I hope. Welcome back. To the percolated media, Stephen King Retrospective. Welcome back. Continuing their journey through the film adapted works of author Stephen King, the boys will spend the next few weeks looking at the three movies in the Sometimes They Come Back franchise. Don't let them upset you, Mr. Norman. They're idiots. Will Adam have a better time with these movies than he did with the Trucks adaptations? Is this what happens to tough guys like you, huh? Will Matt make it through without letting his grumpy Goudreau persona come out? Why don't you throw something at me while I'm looking, huh? Throw it to my face! And will Garrett find a gem in the adaptations of this, his favorite night shift story? Woo! Shooting, Jim. The answers to all these questions and more, coming up, courtesy of percolated media. Why don't we just get this over with? Uh... Sometimes they come back. It originally aired May 7th, 1991, and this was directed by Tom McLaughlin. All right, so we've left trucks behind, much to all of our delight after last week's ridiculous movie. And now we've come to Sometimes They Come Back, a story from that Night Shift collection I actually really enjoyed. Matt, do you remember reading that story? I remember it, but the biggest takeaway from it was in the collection, it's one of the longer stories, Mm -hmm. but I recognized while watching this movie for the first time, there were some pretty sizable differences, so I was impressed that they didn't do a straight translation, although with this format, it's a lot harder because of taking a story that's like 15 pages and making it 90 minutes. Do the math, it's six minutes for a page. Assuming you go that way, which thankfully they did not. But I have to be honest, going into this viewing for the first time, I had no clue what to expect. Between trucks boring me to tears for the most part, and Stephen King and television not having the best track record with me as we've embarked on this journey between the Carrie, TV, Abomination, trucks, the Shining miniseries. At this point, we're over three, and I was praying for someone to throw holy water on me myself and say the power of quality compels you because I wanted to watch something worthwhile. (laughs) Adam, you have not had as good of a time as me and Matt. Obviously, all three of us were down on last week's movie, but me and Matt really enjoyed Maximum Overdrive. You weren't too big on that one. You've been okay on these movies. What were you thinking going into Sometimes They Come Back? Yeah, you're exactly right on the other ones. And in fact, I, I almost want to retroactively give trucks a slightly higher score I think I hesitated last time because I think Matt would have reached through the computer and choked me at my desk while I sit here. But I'm retroactively going to give Trucks a four and keep Maximum Overdrive at a three. (laughs) (laughs) So you're improving last week's movie, but you're... Yes, just put Trucks over Maximum Overdrive. My hand's starting to do like Ash and Evil Dead (laughs) 2. So for this one, I didn't even know this was a TV movie when I got the assignment from you here. I've seen the poster, I've heard the title of it, but I had assumed that this was just a 
low-budget theater release. I had no idea that this was a TV movie, not a miniseries for once, but I had no clue until I started watching it. So I had no preconceived notions whatsoever about this. I did watch the trailer beforehand just to kind of see what I was in for. But I went in just naked as a jaybird. Okay, let's talk about the uh, placement of this movie, because when we do these movies, and we have to kind of outline this every single time, but we're doing them in order of publication. This is an edition of the Night Shift series, but at the time this has come out, Misery had been out in theaters the year before, as was the other miniseries we'll get to when Riker is in high school, It. So Stephen King was still a viable name. Now, I can't wait to get to those movies. I have a lot to say about both of them. But Matt, would you agree? I mean, this is a pretty good placement of this movie. The timing couldn't have been better for doing an adaptation of a book of a story that was pretty far back in his bibliography. But you got to remember, we'll talk about it very in-depthly multiple times next year in 2024 mm-hmm. or 2025. It's on the schedule, everybody. So it's coming up in the next few years. So don't put my kids into college just yet. (laughs) But regardless of what you think about it, it was one of the most watched two-parters on television at that time. So I think doing it, this movie we're going to talk about as a made-for-television film would not have been as counterintuitive or as seen in a negative light as it would be now or even, say, five, ten years after. So I guess the timing could have been more perfect. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about the behind the scenes people of this movie, because we have a couple interesting sets of people working on this. First of all, Matt, we've done this director before. We've we've reviewed this guy before. Do you remember the name Tom McLaughlin? Because sometimes they come back applies to Jason Voorhees as well. Yes, because it applies to Jason Voorhees. He directed Friday the 13th Part 6, which a lot of people cite as one of the best of that series. I believe I was one one of of those. Go back and check that series. Go back and check that series out on Binge. One of my favorites as well in that series. Really, really fun movie that that series desperately needed at that point. So now let's talk about the screenwriters. These two guys, (laughs) they are the same screenwriters of something. I don't know if the three of us are going to get to. Eventually, you got to get to it because I haven't seen the majority of them. But I have seen the one they did. They wrote the screenplay to the 2001 Planet of the Apes remake. That was them. Oh, God. And oh, wait, the Tim Burton, the Tim Burton one. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, yes, sir. Oy. And they wrote something that the three of us are going to be talking about relatively soon, actually. <laughs> In a few months. In a few months, we'll be talking about Superman Four: The Quest for Peace. <laughs> oh, good lord! They brought us him. <laughs> Now, let me also say, they also wrote another movie that we'll be talking about in a few years. They wrote Star Trek VI. Yes, they did. Uh, keep forgetting that Matt has added Star Trek to the schedule. So, what a resume on these two guys. <laughs> this aired 1991. I did see it on its first night. It aired on CBS, which was weird to me because ABC was the home of Stephen King around this time. It was on ABC. The Langoliers, which we'll get to, was on ABC. The Tommyknockers was on ABC. For some reason, this was on CBS. And uh, you will notice also we still have the name Dino, Dino De Laurentiis. His name is the beginning of this. And uh, we talked about in Cat's Eye that they were going to include this story in Cat's Eye, but Dino thought it would have worked as a motion picture, so he held back on putting it in Cat's Eye, and I believe we got the legend instead. So no, I think we got, oh, we got the Drew Barrymore one. That's right, the that Drew Barrymore was... wraparound story, yeah. But Dino, at this point, Stephen King had not done him well. He was pretty much losing money around this time. He had sold the Hannibal rights just in time for Silence of the Lambs to come and snatch up an set of Oscars. It was not his time. But 
this did come out on it was on TV and that might explain a lot of why this is on CBS. That's all I got, boys. What do you say we dive into this because sometimes we podcast. Let's get it on, Daddy-O. Let's get it on. So we open up with some atmospheric music and Dino's name once again splattered on the screen right before the title Stephen King's Sometimes They Come Back appears. Now McLaughlin, he loves his gothic imagery, doesn't he? Between the font in this and some of the sh- and some of the shots, as well as almost all of the graveyard stuff from Friday 6, he's really gone after the aesthetic, hasn't he, Matt? Yes, he does, and he'll use that same graveyard at one particular instance in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good call. We hear an opening monologue about how the mind holds on to painful memories for a reason, as it keeps us from making the same mistakes over and over. And then we're also hearing how this character needed a new teaching job, and the one here in Maine was the only one he could get, so he took it. King really likes playing with the idea of characters trying to make a new life for themselves, doesn't he? And (laughs) teachers with issues. And teachers with (laughs) issues. Good call, Adam. We've already seen it with Jack Torrance in The Shining. We'll see it again with the Creeds and Pet Cemetery, amongst many others we have coming up. This is a trope King loves to use, isn't it, Matt? Love just because it always works. If you want to establish being outsiders to a town, you have your protagonists be either moving there for the first time or coming back. So it's it's an effective writing tool to keep going back to. Of, of all the cliches that Stephen King has in his repertoire, some of them we'll dissect in this movie. This is not one of the ones I take umbrage with. I'm with you. I dig this a lot. What about you, Adam? It works well. I didn't realize till partway through just how many, sometimes the, the tropes come back. And in this one, you know, some of them definitely do, but it doesn't bug me. It, I think it works to set you in a place and you kind of know where, at least where he wants to go with it. And when you got a truncated runtime of something like this, you don't got to worry about fleshing out certain things because we know a little bit because we've seen it in some of his previous works. One thing I do take on bridge with, though, is the opening monologue here. as It's being read by Tim Matheson. So we're meeting the family that we will be spending a lot of time with in this movie. We have Jim Norman, who is played by the aforementioned Matheson. Sally Norman, played by Brooke Adams. And their son, Scott Norman, played by Robert High Gorman. Now, the boy was in a ton of TV after this and before. He was in things like Full House, Empty Nest, Boy Meets World. But he was also in the first Leprechaun movie, a series that I can only dream that we can get to cover one day. I also want to focus on the two adults here. Sally is played by someone, Matt, we will be seeing again next year. I believe we're covering The Dead Zone next year, aren't we? It's on the schedule. And we also have Matheson, who had a run in the 70s and 80s after a nice role in Animal House. He will go on to be in things like Matt's favorite show, The West Wing, This Is Us, and a movie you and I have already covered, Matt, the 2019 Child's Play remake. As the 90s got started, this was the type of stuff he was in, and honestly, he's fine. But he, along with this family, is bland? Is that safe to say? Milk toast, I think, is a, a better word in that there's nothing to these characters that you have not seen done better in other stories of this ilk. I think Matheson is a likable screen presence, but whenever he loses his temper or has to play scared, I don't think it works because I don't think he portrays that very well. And you're right, this is the second movie in a row with a West Wing alumni. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm happy that we have kept that streak going. But having said that, I think there are other actors who would have been better fits for this type of character and for this story. And Brooke Adams is, she is what she is. She's just here to be supportive, and she's also here to be held hostage in the third act. That's basically her role. 
Adam, what about you? Are you endeared to this family at all? Yeah, I actually like all three of them. I think father, mother, and son all do a pretty good job. You know, the mother doesn't have a whole heck of a lot to do. She's just there to play her role. I like Matheson in this. I enjoy what he's doing. I actually believe that he was a teacher. No knock on The Shining, but this one actually feels like a teacher, maybe because we see him teach. Um, and the little boy is definitely less annoying than some of the other Stephen King youngsters that we've gotten in previous ones. So all in all, and right off the bat, I'm kind of endeared to all of them. I like the opening music. I like the opening narration. I like this entire setting into the movie. It's got me brought in right away. It should also be said that in the story, these two do not have a child. So this was stuff added by the screenwriters in McLaughlin. And I agree with you, Adam. I, I think it does bring a different dimension to this story. We're hearing that they left Chicago to go to Maine. And we hear that this is the same town that Jim's brother had died in. And then there's a train whistle in the background that I'm assuming is in Jim's head. I mean, we're going to be hearing this a lot. And then we hear that if he would have known what was coming, he would have taken his family as far away from this town as he could. So we're definitely setting up something here that this is something that he's coming back to that he really shouldn't have. It is to a point, but it also is framing it as if he is telling this story in the future. And this entire story that we're seeing are flashbacks that he is espousing to someone else. I thought that was going to be the framing device of this, where maybe the end of the movie was him talking to a grief counselor or back home. But yeah, it's setting up something that's foreboding, makes you wonder what is actually going to happen in this town. And I guess the scariest thing is what's to come. They made two sequels to this. It's Jim's first day in class, and there are rumors spread about how he got ran out of Chicago, as high schoolers tend to do. They love the gossip. Everyone but me and Adam, of course. Right, Adam? Never. We would never. <laughs> we never did that. These are he, high schoolers? It looks yeah. Like, it looks like he stepped into the DMV with all these people. <laughs> Same high school as Beverly Hills 90210. In Greece, yeah, it might, it might as well be. They went to the same casting agent, because I don't buy a single one of these quote-unquote kids as any less than 25. Yeah. This was the era of 90210. That was the thing. Nobody accused Ian Ziering of looking like a high schooler either, so... <laughs> to be fair, he hasn't aged since then. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> so Jim shows up, and a guy named Chip Conway, a.k.a. the Chipster, says that it's not a real class. It's there for people like him and airhead chicks. But Jim establishes his dominance by smacking a ruler on the desk. This causes Chip to tattle on him to the principal. We'll see this play out as the movie goes on. But this was a common thing in high school where there are classes set up basically for jocks like this to just get a passing grade and continue on playing the sport. Right, Matt? Oh, you're asking me, Mr. Never Played a Down of Football, <laughs> whether or not this is true. I will take I will take the movie at face value with what it's depicting. Okay. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, thank you, Ma thank you, Adam. Yeah, and you know exactly who I'm talking about when I say that. Oh, and I know which people on our team actually had to take those classes. As yeah. <laughs> Jim then has a flashback, the first of many, of him and his brother Wayne, who they're playing in the front yard with a quick cut to what we'll see really established later. And then Jim reveals to Sally that the principal told him he needs to watch his temper as he doesn't want another quote-unquote Chicago incident. So this is kind of being played out like The Shining, isn't it? Oh, very much so. It's kind of crazy how much it's, it's going right to that. We don't even ever get an answer fully as to what happened like we did, you know, in The Shining. But 
it's it's crazy just how much that leans into it. It should be said too. This was written right before Carrie. This was published in Cavalier magazine back in the mid seventies, and this feels like something that King is kind of playing with, just kind of owning his skills for the big novel he's going to be doing later on, which is of course The Shining, which is going to do this exact same thing. Well, you're right, and that's kind of a summary of this movie as a whole, where all the elements that are in this story that King will utilize down the road feel a lot less refined here than they will be later on. A lot of it feels like rough draft, and everything from story to characters to certain plot points, hell, to goddamn trains are things we will see him do down the road. So, so much of this feels like a kind of like a student film, not the direction or anything, but just how it's almost like a, a prototype for what he's going to do later. Jim continues to dream of the night in question, giving us more insight as to what's kept him away. As he wakes up and he goes to his son's room, and we focus on the train in there for a few seconds. There's a toy train in there, so you're right, Matt. He plays with these trains a lot in these stories. More flashbacks happen as Jim is seeing him and his brother Wayne walk away from the house. And then there's a similar brother dynamic in another movie we'll be seeing in the future. Stand by me. I mean, come on. This brother dynamic and the brother dies. We have a train in that one as well. This is the same goddamn bully clan that Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. Yes. King I've never was... seen it. I can't speak to it yet. You've never seen Stand By Me? I've never seen I know. I'm one of the four people in wow. the crowd, but I've never seen Stand By Me. Boy, is that going to be fun to cover. Holy shit. Stay tuned, listeners. Yeah. Wow. So they decide to go through the tunnel as adult Jim is begging them not to go, and they are encountered by a car full of, you guessed it, greasers. We'll be seeing these types of characters in a lot of these, at least early movies. They don't show up in later stories, but you can no, tell King any, was anything, really picked on by these guys. Yeah, anything that involves this particular time period, the bullies are greasers. Stand by me. We talked about it previously. This mm-hmm. is absolutely, when I talk about there are movie bullies and then there are Stephen King movie bullies, this is the latter. He, he has a very specific... I guess it's catharsis for him. I don't know who traumatized him as a child, but they had to be the most despicable people on the planet. You're not kidding. In order to, based on how they're depicted, if this is in any way autobiographical, which I think not to the extent that they go to, but I'm sure their look, their attitude, the way they work as a gang, basically, is something that he experienced in his own life. So they cackle and chase the brothers a bit before the leader emerges. Now, the leader is played by another alum from the slasher genre, Robert Rustler, a man that I have had the pleasure of interviewing. And Adam, if you could find that interview, I'd love it because it was one of the funniest interviews I've ever done. Now, at the time, I had completely forgotten he was in this movie, or I would have definitely asked him about it. Though here, he really doesn't do much other than cackle and flip a blade. He has more range than A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Yeah, and that's saying something. There's some bullying as they ask for money. And then throw Wayne's sneakers up on a pole. And then Wayne gets stabbed. And he begs Jimmy to run as a train comes. Jim gets away as the greasers get killed. Not a bad little train crash for a TV movie. I said in the Avatar 2 podcast, I'm a sucker for a good train crash. And this one isn't too bad. No, in fact, this entire scene in the tunnel, I think by the end of the quote-unquote movie, you notice this weird little set. They look like they put up an inside a closet. But the way that it's at least framed and blocked and shot here, I mean, you get a good sense of feeling trapped in there. And yeah, everything in here is engaging with the brothers. And I mean, the greasers get annoying and they get quite annoying later on. That freaking cackle, or not the cackle, but the <laughs> oh my God, if I never hear that again, it'll be too soon. But now I'm making it the blooper stinger. <laughs> <laughs> 
ass. <laughs> but the train barreling down, it cuts a good image that sticks around. Now, it should be said, too, that this was changed from the story pretty immensely. And I would say for the better, actually. Because in the story, his brother does get stabbed. But we hear later that these bullies were killed in a police chase. Oh, so really? Yeah. So here... They're making the Jim character more of a player in the way these guys get killed. And in that way, I could see the way Matheson is feeling guilty about the entire thing because of the changes they made here. I actually like this more. And what's good about this scene from a writing perspective is the the way that there is a third act reveal that heightens it more. So it's also something that does not come out of nowhere where it's like, oh, they really pulled that out of their ass. It's plausible what he's hiding. But I do think of the changes that they made to the short story, this inciting incident, I think, is maybe the best one and makes up for one of the other changes that I'm not crazy about. Oh, I know the exact one you're talking about, too. Jim goes home, and we cut to him as an adult, sulking on the same porch as Sally tries to comfort him. And then Jim, he tells Chip to just do the damn work if he wants to pass, as Chip threatens him. Then we meet this kid, Billy, on this bike. He talks up Billy, who then drops his wallet as Jim tries driving it back to him. But the greasers, they follow suit and then run him off the road. You know, if we could have gotten to know Billy a little bit, I would have actually felt for this death. But I don't know. Like, we barely know this kid. We don't, but I think for a television production, it's shot well when they remove the car. And there's shots of him just riding on his bike and then Tim Addison's behind him in the van. I like this, but again, I talk about how this is rough draft for King. These greaser people, I don't know what you call them, they operate like demons where they they have like demonic true selves, but they also have vampire rules where they can turn invisible and don't see their own reflection. So it's almost like he's doing a a rough draft of Salem's Lot. I think this is cool, but this is also one of the problems with the way the movie is structured kind of as a slasher movie after a certain point to where you don't really get to know these, these students, especially the... One of them, you get to notice a little that her death is off screen. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the next day, the principal tells Jim that he has another student named Richard Lawson who's assigned Billy's old seat and is then reprimanded by the principal about Jim's car being the only car anyone on the road saw at the time that Billy was killed. Richard Lawson, he ends up being one of the greasers who ran Billy off the road as well as died all those years ago. I kind of like how Russ was playing it, just begging him to hit him pretty much, just really pushing his buttons. And Chip's just loving all this. He's really digging what's going on here. I don't know. Like, the way this is playing out, I can see where King's coming from here, where if one of these students disappears or is, is killed, and then it's replaced by these people who he killed those years, all those years ago, that's kind of a frightening prospect. It is. And it took me a minute to realize that this was the same person. I thought it was maybe somebody that was just looking like him. But then I was also wondering, at this point, is it all in his head? You know, is it going to go back and forth? I'm starting to wonder the what and whys of what's going on. And I'm very intrigued as to what and who and why. But, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, he's, he's looking crazy. And, and I'm starting to wonder, you know, is he going crazy? Did he really kill Billy? Because we get that thrown out there as a possibility. Nobody else saw it. So is this all in his head? Is it not? I'm suckered in. Wow, I would never have guessed you would have been suckered in by this one. That's interesting. I just feel like a sucker. Because the problem is no one in that classroom says, hey, why are you dressed like that? That's how my parents yeah. dress. The fact that he's so distinctly out of a time period that no one else can match is admittedly one of the faults I have with this 
trying to be scary is that he just looks so out of place compared to everyone else, which I think would have worked better if the reveal was it was actually all in his head. But because it's not, it just makes everyone look stupid. Yeah, and how does this guy get through admissions? The school has a really weird admissions program going on here. (laughs) (laughs) If we think about it, it does not make any fucking sense. But I'm with Adam. I'm kind of going with this. A lot more than I thought I would at this point, actually. So we then see an orange that's thrown at the board as the principal walks in and tells Jim to just kind of take a break as the principal will take over for the day. Jim heads over to his brother's grave as he once again flashes back, this time to a time when they were in church, and Wayne tells him this is the safest place that he knows. So as somebody who has read the story and finds it to be, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's my favorite of that entire collection, I know that the story gets very dark, but McLaughlin is really ahead of his time here as this dialogue is the type of stuff that we'll see King himself do six years later in the already covered Shining TV miniseries. (laughs) And that's not a compliment, by the way. Not for you. No, not for me. I know you liked it. I know. For the voting majority on this show. (laughs) I don't know. Adam, do you find this a little too smalty or no? No, because I'm seeing what I'm getting. I mean... With it being as much of a family drama with this, you know, supernatural or horror element going on, no, I think you need this family because I need to know, is he a threat to his family? Is he going to be, is he going to turn into Jack at the end of this? Is he going to kill him? Like, I have no idea. Remember, I haven't read this, so I don't know if he's going crazy and the wife and kid are in danger. I don't know if he's seeing things. I don't know if they really are coming back. So... I like the fact that there's actually a loving, caring family here at the center of all this. Definitely more loving and caring than Jack and and his family in the first Shining movie, that's for sure. So Scott, the little boy, he finds the tennis shoes at a parade. They then proceed to get King Kong 76 at the video store as Jim once again flashes back. Boy, this movie really goes for those flashbacks, doesn't it? Matt, does this get to you? Yes, because I'm reminded of the way that the It miniseries mm. does it almost the exact yeah. same with, with the repetitive beats. But that church scene, as someone who's read the story, threw me off because I thought they were setting up that he was a, a man of God, which ties into the climax of the book or the short story, having to consult a demon, like it'd be him breaking his rules. But as it stands here, I do think it is an appetizer of sweetness. When you get to the main course of sweetness, I thought Spielberg directed this. To be perfectly honest, what we oh for that. God's sake! I, you know what? I was watching this and I was thinking, God, I know Matt's going to make a Spielberg reference, and of course you fucking did. To be continued later on this year. <laughs> Jim runs into Kate, who tells him that she's never seen a train since she moved here, making the noises that he's heard seem like they're all in his head. This goes with what you were saying, Adam, that this could just be him going crazy. Right. More nightmares ensue as Sally asks him if it's starting if it's all starting up again. So he's going through these same motions that he went through that pretty much made them leave Chicago. And then the next morning, Sally tells him that maybe they should consider not staying here and they should pack back up and leave as this doesn't feel like a new beginning to her. Brooke Adams. Sometimes I confuse her with Karen Allen for some reason. You watch your mouth, sir. <laughs> Thou shalt not besmirch the wonderful Karen Allen. No, I didn't besmirch her. I'm just saying she kind of reminds me of her in that, you know, kind of the way she looks, the way she talks. Again, I just, I, I find the casting here, this, and this movie is full of King callbacks. Matt, do you think this is just a callback to the Dead Zone? That's why she was cast. That's not where my brain went. I think she's here because they could afford her. 
<laughs> there you go. <laughs> Richard looks at Kate's seat and laughs, and Jim calls the cops who don't find anything. But as Jim leads them to the barn, they find her hanging from the ceiling. Man, this fucking death came out of nowhere. <laughs> I feel like there's a scene missing. I do too, you know, and we did watch the version, the three of us watched the same version, it's on Tubi at the time this is recorded, that was released on home video because much like trucks, they added scenes to amp up the violence a little bit. I don't know if this was added for that and she had just ended up disappearing in the TV miniseries. I don't remember because I do remember watching it, you know, and I, and, I, and when I was a kid, I watched it and I wasn't supposed to be up that late. So I watched it with the sound down. And so I, I, I didn't really process too much and don't remember too much of it. But you're right. There has to be a scene missing here because this just comes out of fucking nowhere. What also comes out of nowhere is that it, suddenly he's getting visions of this and that type of supernatural shining is different than everything else that had gone on where he's just seen the bullies. I don't know why he's suddenly getting this precog of what's going to be going on. Yeah, it's it's sort of, again, it's the rough draft of the dead zone where he's getting like premonitions of things, of people mm-hmm. not. Yep. Which makes sense when we're looking at these as Stephen King short stories that we've got little drips and drafts of stuff that he's going to I don't know if he fleshes out anything well, but he's going to utilize again later. Uh, We're just seeing a lot of them inside this one story. A PTA meeting has him saying that Kate didn't commit suicide, she was murdered. And the head counselor says that she'd be willing to meet with Jim if he needs some counseling. We then learn of another Milford transfer, which is another one of the greasers from before. So they're just coming back to haunt him. And then Chip comes to Jim's house and tells him that he's scared of how crazy the new guys are. And they told him that they knew Jim a long time ago when they were going to get even with him. So all of a sudden, this jock, this guy who was picking on the teacher in the beginning of this story, now he's like the likable jock, and he's trying to come to Jim's aid here. But we all know from this point on that this guy's fucking dead, right? <laughs> yes, but the way he is offed was the most surprising thing in this entire production. Yeah, just getting to that. So as Chip walks away, he gets stuck on the car of the greasers, very Christine style, I might add. I think that was McLaughlin kind of playing with that. This car might as well be Christine. It's got flames on yeah. it. it. It seemingly has a life of its own. I keep it, zooming in on that front bumper the same way. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I keep thinking, you know, with all this bad driving and, you know, hit and runs, I thought Halle Berry was going to be behind the wheel. Oh, Jesus. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, sometimes they come back to die another day. (laughs) The detective comes and interrupts Jim before he can go save Chip. The the greasers, they pull him in their car as Jim gets interrogated about how he knows about all the killings. Meanwhile, the greasers, they pull up to a bridge as they turn into zombies and tell Chip it's time to rock and jock as they chop him up and throw his pieces over the bridge. (laughs) They chipped him up. (laughs) This was hideous to look at it was just like i rewound it because i'm like okay are they actually throwing pieces of him out and I, I didn't know if they were throwing garbage outside the window or what they were doing but i looked i'm like oh yeah there's an arm oh yeah <laughs> yep but chip's antics cost him an arm and a leg oh jesus my god this was surprisingly graphic for something that for the mo- by all means is not something that you would have to watch on Cinemax with a parental discretion. Yeah. For the most part, this is pretty. It's about as you know, because something like the It miniseries is not bloody. Yeah, um, it is. Or there, there, there are times when it is. It's been a long time since I've seen it. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like I I feel like I I'm the adults where I left dairy and remember nothing. <laughs> uh, but this is, <laughs> I kind of loved it. 
but largely because I was drinking at the time, because I watched this the same day as the Jet game. I was fairly <laughs> And I thought, I thought, like, because you watch Tubi with ads, I thought this was a commercial for another movie or a really obscene commercial for, like, HBO Max. So then I looked at the timestamp. The movie was still going because they cut to the car. I'm like, oh, my God, this is literally the same movie that, has kind of been boring me for the last 15 minutes. But this jolted me back up and made my double vision connect. Jim comes home, and Sally once again expresses how worried she is about him as the detective tells him that Chip disappeared last night. Of course, one down, and another one takes its place as North, another greaser, shows up. To me, this, again, the terrify, it's just a terrifying prospect of feeling guilty about the deaths of others and having all of these people show up, not at once, but little by little, just to kind of haunt him. This movie has flaws, but its concept of how they're haunting this guy is kind of what got me into the story. And McLaughlin, for all he's adding to it that's not good, at least has that essence of the story right. Matt, would you agree with that, that the essence of the story is here? The pieces are definitely here. I mean, they threw him off the side of the bridge, but... <laughs> I think this is a great concept that if you refined it and refocused it would make for an excellent episode of like Black Mirror or oh. I don't know, some anthology show. Because this concept between trading people, you know, take a life to give a life, a curse that follows you around and sort of infects the town. It's nothing new, but it's a trope that I always like seeing. But it's it's kind of hamstrung by I think one thing that really hurts it is watching it now. Because they're 50s greasers, they don't feel that much of a threat. Maybe it's also because they're, like, true, like, demon selves we don't see until shit hits the fan. And you'll get it in, like, freeze frames and quick cuts. If they looked more like that to Jim, maybe, but they look normal to everyone else, I think that would instill a little bit more menace into them. So Jim threatens them to leave his family out of their affairs. And there's the principal to once again spot him at the most opportune moment. Scott, the little boy, he gets stalked by the greasers as they attack him. Anyone else notice the growling sound effect every time these guys are around? <laughs> they enter oh. that. <laughs> oh, the, the Cujo precursor, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so Scott asks if the family can just leave, and Scott promises it won't happen to him again. He then gives him the hat that his brother gave him as a kid. Once again, just piling on the smolt here. Jim explains the same guys that attacked Scott are the ones who killed his brother all those years ago. At this point, Sally is also on the crazy train as she is also having a hell of a time believing Jim that these people that, by the way, died at that same time are back to haunt him. Yeah, it does make him sound a little crazy, doesn't it? A little bit. Yeah. I, I have expected Ray Parker Jr. to come up in this movie and say, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. <laughs> Jim then gets another idea to find the officer who was on the case all those years ago. He finds him in an old folks' home, and he gets told that Wayne was spotted from the other side. And these spirits on the other side, sometimes they lay dormant, and sometimes they come back. I love to read that in his police report, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel here is as good a time as any to explain a few of the big things that the writers and McLaughlin change about the story. One, Sally is killed by the greasers in the story. Oh, damn. And we know that's not going to happen. And here, Wayne is getting set up as this other side spirit, so we know he's going to play a factor in the film's outcome. But in the story, as Matt mentioned earlier, it is actually a book of spells that Jim finds and uses against the creasers. And oh, instead wow. of And instead of his brother being the one who saves him, it's a creature conjured up by Jim after he slices off both his index fingers. 
So he literally has like a book of the dead to get back in the green. Mm-hmm. He, he finds the Necronomicon. Yeah. And summons a demon that takes the form of his dead brother. Yes. That kills the greasers and sends them back to hell. And it's not a happy ending in the book. No. It's a, because the demon's like, I'm coming back for you someday. And that's yeah, he said, sometimes we, sometimes they come back. Is that, that's how it's integrated into the story in the actual story. I wish they kept, they kept that. Cause it, cause it's so crazy, but it also, would have made this feel more like a foreboding horror film. Um, Matt, how do you do that on this budget? What do you do? Do you put makeup on the kid? Like, you can't... They could have done something. I mean, not that it was made for the most money, but I thought the makeup job on Tim Curry and all that was great. Look at the friggin' Twilight Zone for the 50s and 60s. Some of that stuff still holds up really well. Like the, That's a good point. Where they put on the masks and they actually become their faces. That stuff looks really good. So it, it could be done. I don't think makeup would have been a uh, a factor because they did it for the de- when they show their, like, demon faces. I think maybe if this wasn't a CBS TV movie, you know, you're going to a different demographic. You're going to old people, my age people. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. I think it could have gone that way. You know, maybe if this was a part of Cat's Eye, like it was intended, or maybe if it was, you know, its own Tales from the Dark Side, Tales from the Crypt type story, then you could have kept that original one. But, man, that is a big swerve that I did not realize was changed from the original source. Adam, would you have gone with that, or are you going with this a little more? I like this, but I'm always down for a monkey's paw type ending. So something like that where, you know, he conjures a demon, sends him to hell, and then the demon's like, you know, sometimes I'll come back again. That would have been satisfying as well because I just I like that type of non-happy, you're-going-to-get-yours-in-the-end type of movie. Jim's told that Milford does not exist. He then goes and finds the kids' graves, and it is here where the greasers reveal that Milford is actually the cemetery in which they're buried. And this is the cemetery you were talking about, right, Matt? Yep. I half expected a bolt of lightning to yeah. strike <laughs> for, for, a zo- for an actual zombie to come up and take them all out, and then we get the James Bond gun barrel sequence. <laughs> that was so great in that movie. Oh, I love that he did that. Jim then goes to Carl Miller's place and wrestles a gun out of his hand, and Carl reveals that he just got out in time, and Jim tells him that his old buddies are back. This character came out of nowhere. They also never leave it dangling that anyone survived that car crash. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. We don't see anybody escape that. We cut to Sally, who spots the car and is getting stalked as she turns her back. And here come the greasers to ask if Jimmy can come out and play. So we're doing some slasher tropes here, right, Matt? Doing them poorly, I must say. I, think I agree this, with that. From here on out, the movie takes a nosedive. Jim shows back up and shoots at them, but of course it has no effect on them as they scurry away. And then Jim takes his family to the church as Sally apologizes to Jim for ever doubting him. Jim finds the rabbit's foot key chain as Muller comes and says that he's been coming by his place for years and that his life's been hell ever since that day. He also says that he believes Jim when he says that the greasers are back and that somehow he always knew they would be. It almost, to me, we were talking about that this kind of feels like a warm-up to future King stories. I mean, doesn't this kind of seem like what Judd Crandall would say later? Like, sometimes Judd is better. Oh, yeah. Completely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I, I think, I, I can't reiterate enough that just so much of this feels like a rough draft of stuff he'll do later. That's kind of my views on this movie as a whole. Muller says that he won't be afraid anymore and joins Jim's side in his fight against the greasers. There's an explosion and laughter as they show back up and they tell Jim that everything burns. 
They grab Mueller and drive away. And then the greasers, they find Jim's family in the church as Jim scurries to his brother's grave and begs him to help him. And then his brother's spirit, it shows back up. <laughs> From here on out, this movie turns into the ending of Ghost. Yeah, yeah. I thought of Ghost and I thought of that Shining TV miniseries. Those are the two things I thought of here. I was expecting Kissing, Kissing, that's what I've been missing to sh- to be said sometime here. Because of the big shimmering silver vagina that opens up in the middle of the screen? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the greasers, they once again find Sally and Scott, and as they take them away, Jim finds them. The greasers corner Jim and his family as Carl is stabbed, and this is when Wayne shows up and a fight ensues. The train also shows back up, and once again, the train takes them all out, straight to hell. Man. So my question is how? Yeah. Is this train also something you have to summon? Or is it the ghost of the train, like the conductor was summoned? This is so... For something that does such a good job with this premise and explaining how to take a life, you give a life, that's how they come back, they sure come up with a haphazard way to dispose of that. This ending is crazy. I I mean, for me, they set up that the same thing's got to happen and blah, blah, blah. And I knew as soon as it changed a little bit, it was going to screw it up. So I knew the train was going to come back. There was no doubt about that. So I, I want to see the devil book. But, you know, in lieu of that, I got no issue with this, right? Well, other than it's, you know, TV, Stephen King movie. But outside of that, I don't hate it. Other than the fact that it's a Stephen King TV movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got to come to it on its level. There you go. Wayne meets Jim's family. Yes, I said Wayne the ghost meets Jim's family. As Jim says that he can't go with him to the other world due to his need to his family and that he will always be in his heart. This is the ending of Ghost. I just rewatched Ghost like a month ago. That's <laughs> exactly how this is. He also promises that one day they will be together again. Wayne heads back to the light as Jim gives Scott his good luck coins. And we didn't even mention that earlier, but these coins are, this is what the boys were bringing to the library because they had an overdue book. I don't know why those would be called good luck coins, but here we are. It's probably Stephen King has a written a story about an angry freaking library. <laughs> he has. He oh, has. are you serious? Yes. Go to Four Past Midnight. Yep. It's, okay. it's called The Library Policeman. Good call. Does that have an adaptation? Because I kind of want to review that. It oh. does not, but we will be re- we will be reviewing a story in that book. It's called The Langoliers. You know what? Oh, fuck me up. The ass. <laughs> you know what? I'm I'm gonna send Stephen King a dollar. Come on, we gotta get that. <laughs> That's a Seinfeld episode, man. <laughs> I love the fact that you said it'd be crazy if he came up with. It. I'm like, yeah, he actually did. Yeah. The oh crazier thing is you knew specifically where that was published, what short story collection it was in. Yeah, I know. I'm weird. Sorry. <laughs> they leave the cave as credits roll on Sometimes They Come Back. Oh, this is why I love doing these reviews. You always find gems like what we just ended on. Scale of 1 to 10. What do we give Sometimes They Come Back? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. I was having no clue what to expect from this, being that there's three of them, and I learned they were for TV. My expectations were low. However, this is one of those rare Stephen King ones that cleared the low bar that I had set. I didn't have an issue with this. I was able to get al- go along with the story perfectly fine. Did the greasers get on my nerves? Yeah, sure. But you know what? Anytime I get these greasers showing up in 
any movie. I don't care if it's a Stephen King movie. I don't care if it's freaking Indiana Jones 4. I am going to hate a greaser character. Unless it's Grease 2, I just do not like a greaser character. Outside of that, yes, I said Grease 2. Outside of that, <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> I'm editing out 2, and I'm just going to put Grease there so that people don't come after you. Go ahead. Uh, uh, fuck, I'm funny. That lore started to give me drinks. But I was able to enjoy this perfectly fine. I thought Matheson did a serviceable job for a serviceable story, and that's kind of what this is. Tons of Stephen King Easter eggs, if you want to put them that way. We didn't even discuss the fact that this is 27 years to the day after his brother died, which I was like, 27, 27. Oh, my God, he's referring all the way back to it, you know, yeah. with that 27 years. Teachers, students, brothers, bridges, trains. It's amazing how many little things are fleshed out in the story, but I had a good time. Will I pop it in again? No. Will I turn it off if it's on TV, though? No, sure won't. I'll leave it on. Had a good enough time with it, and I'm in a good old six. Six on ten. Solid. Double the score of Maximum Overdrive, Matt. Sometimes they come back. Goudreau, what about you, sir? This movie, I have to say that sometimes they come back, maybe I consider not staying here. Sometimes, every once in a blue moon, you just watch a movie about zombie greasers, and don't know what to make of it. I have spent all day with the daunting task of trying to figure out how do I review this movie. Because it's got some spooky Halloween-type atmosphere to it. There's some stuff that's decently creepy. But I think it's imperfections shine through. And I'm not talking about, eh, shine. And I don't say that because of the production or anything like that. I think it's all in the writing. And it's in the familiarity in everything that is established here. For better or worse, we'll see a lot of this down the road. And that car, honestly, feels like it's stuck in neutral for a lot of this movie. I'm not going to call it boring, but I think there's some dull parts in the middle with the typical family doubt on the part of the wife. And the kid feels rather disposable after he's introduced. I love this idea. I think if there was something that I would like to see readapted, it's not trucks. It would be this. Because I think you could make something effectively terrifying throughout. Just update it with greasers, remove them, get rid of the kid who looks like the lost Malfoy sibling, get rid of the guy who looks like Elvis, revamp it because kids are a lot worse today with bullying, especially you could make this like cyberbullying, and it like affects him across the country so he doesn't have to move back to his town. It seeps into the internet or what have you. But for what it is, and in comparison to the other Stephen King television adaptations we watched this far, I'd probably call this the best one. And as shocked as Adam is, I'm in a similar ilk to where I'm going to give this a six. I thought it was perfectly enjoyable, albeit flawed to a writing extent. Does this mean we're going to have demons come after us? Because we have three sixes on this podcast. Cause I have that no, you well. don't. I do. <laughs> And by the way, Matt, if you're concerned about them remaking this and trying it again, good news for you is that we're going to have two sequels to review. Keep your head up there, sir. Yeah, I did give this a six. I'll tell you why. Coming in, I didn't have too many good memories of this. But when I sat down to watch it after reading the story, I read it last year and I read it right before I watched the movie the other day. I had a pretty good idea of what was on the story, what was on the page, and I had almost completely forgotten what was on the screen. I think the changes they make to this story are great. I don't think the demon coming up at the end would be fitting for the way this thing ends, but I say the changes are great up until the end, and I was with this movie 
for the most part, given all the plot holes that are in it, I mean, you could drive Christine through the plot holes that are in this fucking movie. Again, where's the admissions here? Why are these kids allowed to be in this class? There's, it makes no fucking sense. But I still had a pretty decent time with this, and I also have a six written down because I think as a as smolty as it is, it's an enjoyable enough watch. And uh, like Adam, I'm probably not going to go out of my way to watch it again. But I would recommend somebody if it is on or it's right there on your streaming platform and you like Stephen King stuff. I I, I would say give this a watch. Yeah. So 6 out of 10, which is about as positive as I thought I was going to go with this series. So here we go. Sometimes they come back as done. Boys, next week we have the very creatively titled Sometimes They Come Back Again. They went straight to video. Oh, goody. What do you expect next week, Matt? The abyss, to be perfectly honest, because you said Stephen King and direct-to-video to a lesser property in his extensive career. So I think you have given me my own Necronomicon of crap that I'm going to have to conjure up enjoyment to get through. If I wind up liking either of these upcoming sequels, I'm calling an exorcist myself. Hey, the good news is we have a future Oscar winner next week. <laughs> Hillary Swank, she's here next week. Oh, because that worked out so well for the next Karate Kid. Something we haven't reviewed yet. <laughs> Don't go there. Adam, what about you, sir? I mean, you gave this a relatively positive review. What are you expecting when we go to Sometimes They Come Back Again? I got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> I don't know why I enjoyed this enough. There's nothing in here to me that says, hey, bring them back. I don't know if the family's coming back. I don't know if these demon greasers are coming back. I don't know if Exposition Meadows Retirement Home is coming back. I have no idea what is going to be in the next film, but being that it's a couple years later, is it direct to VHS video with Hilary Swank? I got a bad feeling that I'm going to need to get a couple more glasses of wine for that viewing. Yes, you do. Now, I haven't seen either of the sequels, so we're all coming in this pretty cold. To say I'm looking forward to it would be overestimating it. Right now I'm just thinking, okay, let's get through them. <laughs> this is part of the night shift that we all signed up for. Let's just get through them. But that does it before sometimes they come back. Thank you, boys, for joining me on this journey through King Adaptations. And until next week when we review, sometimes they come back again. You always wanted to be like your brother, didn't you, Jimmy? You love podcasting. Thank you, boys. Okay, guys, let's sit down. Chip, take a seat. What's that, an order? No, it's a suggestion. You can take a seat or you can go talk to the coach about it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Sometimes the hardest part is admitting to yourself that something exists which makes you frightened. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Real glad to be here, sir. And if you'd like to hear the boys talk about the film adaptations of Carrie and The Shining, please head over to bingemedia.net and click the Aftertaste tab. Don't you know? Your buddies are back. And if you would be so kind please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. You want to give that to me? 
Oh, I'd love to give it to you. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Now on, we all stay together. Edited by Garrett. Mind giving me a hand? Voiceovers by Adam. But you gotta live with me and I gotta live with you, so let's try and enjoy it, okay? The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Come on, Mr. Norman. We're going to break for dinner. We'll get back at it later. Don't wait for me to go to bed. We're doing two shows. No. Uh, if we did two Stephen King shows in a row, Adam would put both barrels of a shotgun in his mouth, so it's one and one. Yep. Anyway. Night. That'd be cool to hear on the air, though. <laughs> but I went in just naked as a jaybird. Sorry, guys. Jen just got home. Hi, Jen. Because sometimes they come back too. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they come back. Yeah, today's my Friday. I know. But... <laughs> that woman has amazing timing. She really does have great timing, doesn't she? <laughs> and she set up the joke perfectly. Now I can get my oblivious yes, she did. saying the title of the movie in the show. So you came home, and we're doing Sometimes They Come Back with... Poor Steve Choice and Men, movie. but Great Choice in Timing. And Adam's, or Matt's all, hey, because sometimes they come back, too. <laughs> There's the laugh. Yeah, that's her laugh. That's my girl. But I'm sure their look, their attitude, the way they work as a gang, basically, is something that he experienced in his own life. Adam? Yeah, I mean, I do rubber stamp it exactly. <laughs> the game that I'm at right there. Okay. Jim finds the rabbit's foot key, rabbit's foot keychain as Miller, Mueller, I, can't, I don't know how to say that. It's M-U-E-L-L. No, it's, it's Mueller? Mueller, okay.